Hey there, Kubrick fans. If you like what you hear during this episode, be sure to visit our website at thekubrickseries.com for more episodes and uncut interviews from the series. And you can also consider making a one-time or recurring monthly donation in any amount of your choosing if you'd like to support our podcast. That's thekubrickseries.com. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Kubrick series Uncut. In this episode, we speak with director Jay Widener. Mr. Widener is a renowned author, filmmaker, and scholar. An acclaimed documentary filmmaker, he is the president of Sacred Mysteries Productions. He theorized a possible hidden meaning in The Shining involving a cover-up of the faked moon landings. Uh, uh, my uh, uh, first experience with Stanley Kubrick was in 1968. Uh, it was my first uh, spiritual or religious experience of my life. It was when my girlfriend took me to see 2001 A Space Odyssey at the Cinerama Dome, and uh, I was completely paralyzed uh, by the film and uh, couldn't actually get out of my seat, and the usher had to come help me. And I was stunned for days, actually, after seeing the movie and didn't think that movies could do what that movie had done. And at that moment, I decided that I would devote the rest of my life to filmmaking, which I have. Mm -hmm. So uh, he had a huge effect on me. Um, and uh, so that's how I got started. And then that's how I kind of just was a fan of his until, um, until uh, he died in 1999. And about a month and a half after he died, I sat down on a Saturday afternoon and with my wife and I just began downloading the alchemical interpretation of 2001 with the black monolith as the philosopher's stone and the transmutation of humanity as the goal, which is the goal of 2001. And um, I put the article up, it got a lot of readership on the internet. Uh, but a lot of people complained because there was no proof that Stanley was actually involved or interested in the occult. And this was before Eyes Wide Shut. It was in the window between when he died and the opening of Eyes Wide Shut on July uh, 20th, uh, 1999. Mm. And uh, then Eyes Wide Shut came out about a month and a half or so after my article came out. And uh, that kind of sealed up the uh, argument that he wasn't interested in the occult because mm -hmm. this movie proved he was. So uh, I felt somewhat vindicated at that point and uh, began watching his films with Ernest to see if there was anything else I could see. And uh, um, in 2001, the year 2001, when the uh, DVD 2001 A Space Odyssey came out, I, of course, immediately bought it, just like I bought the Blu-ray version when it came out. And... Um, was watching it, and I just spent about 10 years uh, looking uh, through the Apollo archives with a fellow researcher named Richard Hoagland, uh, going through the NASA work and covering the moon landings and and everything. And you know, I was a firm believer in NASA and everything that they did. And as I was, but I'd become extremely familiar with the NASA imagery. Uh, probably like almost no one outside of NASA had looked at, at as many Apollo photographs as I had. Um, and uh, 
there's always something peculiar about the Apollo photographs that, that always worried me or kind of as a photographer and as a filmmaker, uh, it just seemed odd. Uh, for one thing, how, how, the, how good the composition was, even though the astronauts couldn't see through the viewfinder of their Hasselblads. And yet the composition and the lighting was just first rate, almost like Stanley had done it almost. And uh, then when I was watching the DVD of 2001 A Space Odyssey, I was about 10 minutes into it, watching the eight sequences when, um, and, and be very appreciative of, of how beautiful they were and mm -hmm. uh, Stanley's incredible front screen projection work on the eight scenes when suddenly I realized that there was a fingerprint which had to be in a front screen projection scene and that would be the the separation line between the stage set and the background screen mm -hmm. and then then I had the then I I, I realized that 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 the, the that there there was always this slight difference in texture between the foreground on the stage set and the background um by projection screen in the eight scenes and also in the lunar scenes in 2001, and that set me sent me back to the uh, Apollo archives because the same strange feelings, visual feelings that I got from the eight scenes I also had received when I went through the Apollo work, and that was the a sense of unrealness, and one of the things that felt unreal was the incredible, not just the composition and the lighting of the Apollo photographs, which are really quite good, um, but the um, the strange uh, thing of everything being in focus, whether it be the mountains way behind the astronauts or all the way up to the visors on their helmets. Just like in the eight scenes, everything is in focus. Um, whether it be the club that the the, the bone club that the ape uses, uh, uh, all the way to the mountain desert mountain behind him, and that's because everything is on a very close plane of focus in a front projection situation, where the screen is literally right next right behind the actor, and so there's a very small depth of field in that and so everything kind of stays in focus and then I realized how they had done the everything in focus bit and began going through the Apollo footage and realized that the telltale um, evidence was the separation line between the stage set and the background projected image there was always a difference in ground texture image texture um, it exists in both in, in the Apollo footage and in the Kubrick footage. There are also telltale uh, ribs and, 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 and seams that the front projection scene screen uh, was put together and crafted together from huge amounts of this 3M scotch light material, and Kubrick was sewing it together to create these huge desert scenes. And so when I lowered the gamma and the contrast on the Kubrick 2001 footage, I could see the um, <clears throat> the interlacings and the sewings and the craftings of the Scotch light screen in the background. And I had already worked with Richard Hoagland in which he had done the same thing 
to the Apollo footage and found all of these strange crisscrossing patterns and things, which I think, beyond any doubt, I believe is the smoking gun proving that the Apollo photographs were done using front uh, screen projection because we can see the scenes and the screens behind the astronauts. That said, I do not have absolute smoking gun proof that Stanley Kubrick directed them. This is true. I do have a lot of circumstantial evidence uh, which it p piles up would uh, nearly uh, on its own, you know, convict Mr. Kubrick of the deed. But um, I do not have the smoking gun that proves it. I believe I will have it soon. Um, but the fact that the two, uh, 2001 Space Odyssey ran co-current with the Apollo program, the fact that Stanley Kubrick insisted that Eyes Wide Shut be released on the 30th anniversary of the launch of Apollo 11, and a lot of other things, but most of the evidence that I have that uh, indicts Stanley as the person who did the moon landings is buried inside his very famous film, The Shining. Mm -hmm. Let me go. Let me go back real quick because I've seen the photos that you've you've posted, and and it clearly shows the patterns and the separations that you're talking about and the compositions, and it's very convincing. But linking link, linking Stanley to this, do you think it was the fact that he was so kind of spookily uh, spooky accurate with Doctor Strangelove? Uh, that they possibly approached him about the moon yeah, project? Think, uh, well, they, they, he had sent the script, you know, the Terry Southern, and he wrote a script and to the Pentagon, and they really didn't like it, of course, and turned him down for shooting any of the B-52s or, in fact, in, uh, involving the U.S. military. So Stanley had to do it on his own, and he took photographs from military magazines of B-52s, both inside and outside B-52s, and had his uh, art director literally recreate the B-52 both on the outside and the inside. And uh, because of no Pentagon help, uh, you know, it was, you know, you know, he just was just doing it. He didn't even really know what he was doing to a large degree because he'd never really been inside a B-52. But the end result, because he was such a perfectionist, um, literally just blew the Pentagon away. They could not believe the attention to detail, the um, the accuracy, the uh, everything, all the entire thing. It just blew their minds. And what really blew their minds was the uh, uh, exterior shots of the B-52s going over Russia. That time in 1963, you know, um, they never really done a lot of front screen projection work uh, to the, to that kind of degree, and here was Stanley was using it um, to shoot the, uh, the, the 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 Russian mountains outside the windows of the aircraft and everything, and this just had never been done. And uh, you know they used rear screen projection, but it always was about a half a stop um, different than the front than the actors in the front. And Stanley hated uh, rear screen projection and only used it in mocking kinds of ways. But he loved front screen projection because it looked more real. And um, so when the Pentagon saw the uh, the uh, cut of Dr. Strangelove, uh, they were very unhappy with the film, but they were blown away by it. 
And I believe that that's when they decided that they would approach Stanley as the only guy who could do it. And, you know, he has to also direct actors. It's not just a technical thing. You know, it would be also a directing thing. So somebody could say, oh, well, they could get any technician to, to pull that off. Well, that's true. They could. But maybe they could. Um, but just, you know, just consider for a second that you're dealing with a guy with like a 200 IQ um, and he can direct actors. He directed mm-hmm. Kirk Douglas and Spartacus and, and this. So this is a guy who can do the job. And um, and so they they brought him in, I believe. And I think they sent Arthur C. Clarke to go recruit him. And then they you know they they decided to create a movie as a cover, as a research and development project for it. And uh, they got to go ahead to just do whatever they wanted. And in fact, they did whatever they wanted. And uh, the uh, head of MGM said uh, just a few months before the release of 2001 that he'd never even seen a, 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 a copy of it or anything, which just you know beguiles the imagination that a studio head would not want to see the most expensive movie they were making. And uh, so you start looking at this thing, and then you start realizing that um, that there really, in 1963, there really was only one guy. There wasn't a bunch of guys that you could choose from. There was really only one guy that you could choose, mm-hmm. yeah. and it was him. The best technician, the best director of his day. Even Orson Welles said that. Absolutely. Um, in, yeah. in exploring The Shining um, and reading your piece on it, um, and I know you made you made a film as well that covers uh, all of all of your Kubrick material as well. Um, I, I'm, I'm struck by The Shining can be viewed and enjoyed as most people do as a fairly straightforward horror film, but it is his most deceptive film because there's a lot of a lot of talk about uh, uh, numerology in the film. There's a lot of speculation about. Uh, we we spoke to an ABC News reporter that. Claim that he thought it was about the genocide of the American Indian. I mean, there's, I, I've never, never, yeah, never seen a movie explored in this in quite this way. Uh, what came together for you in this period of time after his death, uh, culminating in The Shining? What did you find in that film? Well, I, you know, I, I have to admit from the beginning that I, I really. Did not like that film. Um, and mm-hmm. I, I was anticipating it very much when it came out, and I was intensely disappointed by it. I, I really like horror films, and I do not think The Shining is a scary film. I think it's a creepy film, but I didn't know why I thought it was creepy outside of Jack Nicholson's performance. And I kind of buried it away and never really watched it much. But Blu-ray came out, and I had to buy all of Stanley's films, and I did. And so about three years, whenever it came out, two or three years ago, I sat down. I finally had a moment with no one around, and I had my big screen TV I just bought, and I popped on The Shining, and I started watching it. And as I watched it, I realized that there was a lot of funny business going on. And, I, and I'm not talking about any of the lunar stuff. I'm talking about, um, I, I mean, I, I finally figured out why Stanley starting with The Shining, started uh, began doing multiple takes. I don't mean doing the 10 takes that he was doing in Clockwork Orange or the 15 or 20 takes that he was doing in Barry Lyndon, but I'm talking about the 40 or 50 takes that he began doing starting with The Shining. 
And what he's doing is he it what the shining is on on, on the shining is about 25 different movies and this also was done on purpose but what it was doing on one level was um using subliminal in imagery to tell a very disturbing story and um he's doing it throughout the shining um he's lining shots up so that there's one frame in the shot where something happens where an alignment occurs and in that alignment you get another paragraph in the story and he's doing it continuously throughout the film and he's airbrushing I think subliminal images into the films including pictures of himself and um he's uh that's that's one level okay he's doing a whole subliminal seduction he'd read o'brien's books in the 70s there's no doubt about it and he's using the methods that the advertisers were using that o'brien exposed in his books of using sexual imagery buried underneath the um upper layer of advertising imagery so there's you know penises in the ice cubes and women's breasts in the glass of tonic and 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 this is all they're really doing this and Kubrick knew it and he added it into the shining and this is the reason why the shining is so creepy because there is a lot of seriously perverted sex going on in front of you and you don't even know it and um, the one moment the one I wanted to ask you about this but because now that you mentioned that the one moment that struck me was he's in the waiting room waiting to be interviewed in the lobby, and he's holding a, a Playgirl, as if a That's Playgirl right. magazine, yeah, which I thought was such you an want, odd... Really, do you want to go into that? I mean, if, <laughs> you, you really want to go into that? If, I mean, I mean, because you Playgirl magazine was read, it was well known in the 70s that Playgirl magazine was not read by women. All right? Yeah, men, they went to newsstands that said that they never they, women never bought it, but men bought it all the time. Right. All right. So gays were buying it. And it was well known that gays were buying Playgirl. Jack Nicholson, I contend to you, is gay in the film. He's not only gay, um the only person in the family that he's attracted to is Danny. Yeah. Okay. I'm telling you that there's a whole no, I, I, a whole I, I undercoat that is so creepy and so strange that there can be no doubt about it. And he establishes from the beginning that Jack Nicholson is gay. <laughs> well, and I do get the sense, I do get this kind of subtle, uneasy sense that he that he did more than just break Danny's arm, that there was some kind of exactly. you know, sexual abuse there. Well, the scene with Danny and Jack uh, in the bedroom, when he goes to get the fire truck, there's all these strange allusions, all right? Fire, there's only two words in the world in the English language that begin with F and end with U-C-K, okay? The one is a rather famous word, and the other one is fire truck, okay? Now, Danny has an obsession with the fire trucks in the bedroom, <clears throat> right? Mm-hmm. And later, when they're watching the Roadrunner cartoon, uh, Wendy and Danny, if you look in the corner of the background, you'll see that the teddy bear is in the corner with the fire truck in front of it. And um, I'm going to try and be nice here, 
but the way the shot is lined up, the teddy bear is um, um, sexually turned on. And the image that per makes that happen is the ladder of the fire truck. And it's in a perfect position to give the bear um, a you-know-what. <laughs> So you, you look at this, and you can see that there's, this is only the beginning. When, when Jack Nicholson and Barry Nelson um, shake hands uh, at the interview at the beginning, and Barry Nelson says, nice to see you, as soon as he says, nice to see you, if you freeze the single frame, you'll see that as soon as Barry and, and Jack Nicholson touch hands, Barry Nelson gets a hard-on from the... Um, a uh, paper tray that's on the desk. Perfect lineup. Perfect. And this is going on all through the film. <laughs> wow. Um, bears are having sex with Bears are having sex with Danny. Um, Jack Nicholson's having sex with Danny. Um, uh, it is really, really disturbing. That's all I can say. And yeah. uh, that's only the second layer. The subliminal, and then there's the sexual layer. And then we get to the really um, interesting part, which is that Kubrick is faking the making of a Stephen King book uh, to reveal something else. In other words, I'm not even sure Kubrick cared all that much for the material that he was working with. I think he was merely using a bestseller um, with the veneer of a horror film to, reveal, to, to really make a film that was going to be so mind-blowing that it would be talked about for the next 500 years. That's what I believe. And, 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 and so when the, book, when the movie came out, Stephen King was extremely upset and uh, said it was a terrible movie and, and it was illogical and he removed and changed material that just didn't make sense. And Stephen King was absolutely right. It just really didn't make sense. For one thing, the book The Shining is extremely cinematic and it should have made an easy flip over to a movie. But instead, Kubrick began removing and changing things which were completely inexplicable to everyone everywhere. And um, I didn't like it and that's the reason I didn't like The Shining. But when I was sitting there watching the Blu-ray version going by, and uh, beginning to contemplate that maybe I didn't want to finish watching this movie, uh, I began realizing that there was something really funny going on in this film. And I began watching it very closely, and I began seeing some of the subliminal images, some of the homosexual references, and then I began realizing that um, my theory that I had that Stanley Kubrick had directed the Apollo moon landings, um, that that was the key to unlocking the mystery behind why Stanley removed so much of Stephen King's great material and replaced it with so much inexplicable material. Because every time that he changes the Stephen King book, he's, it, 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 once you add them all together, it is a secret story of what he went through to film the Apollo 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, not 13, but 14, 15, 16, 17 landings. And um, it is only when you, when you look at the changes that he made that you can understand the 
secondary story in total. And so, you know, from the beginning to the end, every change is another step forward in him telling us the story. All the way from, um, all the way from, uh, from the, uh, changing of the story with, with the book, or writing the same sentence over and over, that's not in the Stephen King book, uh, to the fact that the, uh, bartender, whose name is Lloyd, uh, is, uh, a satanic, the fact, all, all these things, the fact that Halloran, um, who in the book saves Wendy and Danny, but in the, uh, movie is killed right away. All these things are all part. The changing of, of the, uh, the changing the, of the room number? Uh, the changing of the room number. Every single thing was a subtle hint. Kubrick was working, um, at the highest levels of, of, of filmmaking with, with, you know, the, CIA and the NSA and everyone watching everything that they're doing. All these people at the top, they're all being watched now. And Kubrick was being watched. And he knew that they, he had to slip the message past the gatekeepers or they would censor it. Uh, there's one message that he didn't, you know, that he wanted to get out but didn't want to get caught getting out. And that's the reason that it's, um, so deeply enveloped inside the Stephen King material. And, um, and he's playing tricks with the audience and, and all sorts of strange and, and crazy uh, uh, things are going on that it's actually, um, I've been working on it now for two years and I've unraveled about seven layers and I think there's probably another 10 to 12 layers that still are going to unravel here before it's over. And I think that was actually his last film. I think he kind of pooped out on filmmaking after The Shining, and he wasn't interested in it anymore. He had done the thing that he wanted to do in The Shining. So I think Eyes Wide Shut and AI, which is another whole story, were going to be a sort of a return for him, and then he was going to retire after AI. Um, so uh, The Shining is an absolutely stupendously deep film about extremely dark forces that appear to be overrunning our planet. And the reporter who said that it's about the conquest of America, well, he's right. It is about that. That was added in by Kubrick. That was not put in the Stephen King book. And um, and it is about America trampling over the uh, culture that was here before without a, a wink or a nod to it. And... Uh, but it's much more than that. You know, some people think it's about the Holocaust, which I find a little bit of a stretch. But um, but basically, The Shining is a, a multifaceted story that you could go on for literally hours and hours and hours unveiling it. And, um, you know, I don't know how many more times I'm going to watch it, but every time I watch it, I pick up 15 or 20 more things. Me too. I mean, it, it has to be the, one of the most fascinating movies ever made. And... What strikes me about it is, in reading all the thoughts about it from yourself and others, is that he made a true horror film because it is completely comprised of of everything horrendous in, in life, uh, whether it be genocide, uh, abuse. There's a, a, a very distinct streak of racism in the film. Yep. Yep. Um, I wanted oh, you yeah. to. Uh, it's... Go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, actually, no, I, I wanted you to, to hear your question. 
I actually wanted you to articulate one point, um, one particular scene that, that reading your work and your description of the scene, it kind of gave me chills and it put it all together for me, uh, which is Danny when he first approaches room 237 and how that parallels to, to this theory you've been describing. Yeah, I think that that's the scene that does it, actually. It's almost exactly half, uh, one hour into the film, I think 58 minutes or something. And um, Danny is playing uh, on the uh, oddly hexagonal-shaped carpet pattern with his trucks, if you remember. And um, and then, you know, in the scene, a ball suddenly rolls out of nowhere, a tennis ball, the ball that Jack Nicholson was throwing on the wall earlier, that disappears into the hotel, finally reappears. Um, and the ball is echoing what the twin girls were saying earlier, which is, uh, do you want to play with us, Danny? And uh, it's a ball, and Danny decides that, yes, he does want to play. He stands up, he walks down the hallway to room 237, he opens up the, oh, the door is open, he, op he pushes it open, and then the scene fades out. Well, it's a crucial scene in the movie, and uh, it's a crucial scene in my theory because uh, it explains just about what Stanley, everything that Stanley is trying to convey about what happened with the faking of the moon landings. And it's done in such a subtle way that no one... I'm in the host queue. Oh, I'm sorry. Did you hear a recording say that? That pops yeah, up okay. occasionally. I have no idea. We're All still right. recording. You're good. You're good. Okay. <laughs> I'm in the host queue. Okay, and so Danny is playing with his trucks there in the hallway, and the ball rolls up. And um, the first thing we note is the um, odd carpet pattern, which is uh, unlike any carpet pattern that I think any of us have ever seen. There's even uh, T-shirts and posters with that carpet pattern on it, by the way. Um, and uh, uh, um, I always wondered, you know, why, even after I'd figured out that, that the film was about the faking of the Apollo moon landings, I could not figure out why the carpeting had this odd shape on it. And then as, as I was making my film, um, for some reason, thankfully, I Google imaged in the uh, landing strip where Apollo 11 and 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 took off, um, uh, 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 launch pad 39A um, at, uh, at in, in Miami, and uh, whoa, I could not believe it, but uh, there the pattern exactly, not exactly, but so closely emulated the pattern that was on the carpeting that Danny was sitting on that I really couldn't believe it, including the driveway. Uh, leading up to the uh, launch pad is exactly exactly the same configuration as the bottom thing coming out of the hexagonal pattern in the, on the carpet. So Danny is playing. We see the, that there's a launch pad, and then the, you realize that the trucks and everything kind of look like the trucks and stuff that you see around a rocket launch pad before it launches, you know, filling up the, the, the fuel and all that. And And so I thought, well, that's really strange. And then, of course, Danny stands up, and we see his sweater after the ball is thrown. Danny stands up, and we see a crudely uh, sewn sweater which says Apollo 11 on it with a rocket launching. And um, so, I mean, it's not even symbolic. Danny is a rocket who launches off the pad, and, um, and, and the rocket is Apollo 11. And uh, it's pretty clear. 
And then Danny goes down the hallway and he goes to room 237. At this point, when I'm watching uh, The Shining, my first time when I'm figuring this out, I've got my laptop on by this point, and I stop the movie. And somewhere in the dim recesses of my of my uh, education, I remember somewhere that the moon was 237,000 miles away, and I'd always remembered that because. It was an it was an even number. In other words, it wasn't two hundred thirty seven thousand one hundred eighty or something. It just you know zeroed out exactly at two three seven zero zero. And so I googled in you know distance Earth to Moon and got two hundred thirty seven thousand. It's the mean distance. Don't forget the Moon uh, goes in and out, gets closer. It's in a slightly elliptical orbit, so it's not uh, you know exactly two hundred thirty seven thousand. It's a it's the mean distance. Sometimes it's two hundred forty five thousand. Sometimes it's closer than 237, but it averages out to 237. Now, with the lasers bouncing off the moon, they've, they've, they've now challenged that, and they say, well, it's not quite that. But in 1980 and in the 1960s when Kubrick was working, that was the distance all science books gave as the distance between the Earth and the moon, 237,000 miles. Hence, we now know why Kubrick changed the name to 237 to signify the symbolic distance that his fake rocket sitting on Danny's back would travel to get to the place where he would have to fake the landings, which was inside the room once they got to the moon, the fake moon. Now, all this may, you know, people may be saying, well, this guy is completely out of his mind and all that, <laughs> but I beg you to watch the film and see it because it's pretty unreal. But the most unreal thing of all is that Kubrick puts a a key tag on the key sitting in the doorknob of room 237. Of course, it says room number 237 on it. But he has room with R-R-R-O-M with large letters, and then he has the old uh, European-style uh, word number which for N-O, which we don't use anymore, and that had a large N and a small O, and then the number is 237. Well, if you take just the number, the letters that are capitalized on that key tag, R O O M and the N, and you try to make all the English words that you can out of it, you're only going to get two words. Well, you get more, but that's a that's a noun, so that doesn't count. But uh, a pronoun. But the two words that you get are moon and room, and you can't get any other words, and that is. That is it. It's the moon room. It's the moon room. It's the fake room where he does the faking of the moon launch. And this is sealed later when, again, kind of defying the novel, Jack Nicholson completely denies that anything is going on in room 237 to, to Wendy. And, um, again, uh, you have to wonder, you know, what, what, what's going on here at a certain point the number of coincidences start piling up and they get so high that uh that you know the poop begins to stink and uh so when um and this goes forth when when uh, the the great scene the culminating scene where uh Wendy discovers uh Jack Nicholson uh the novel that Jack Torrance is writing and she's anxious to read it and he's working in his secret room where she's not allowed to be in on it, and she's not allowed to know what he's working on, so she has to sneak into the room. 
She sneaks into the room, and she finds, of course, that he's just in the room writing the same sentence over and over, all work and no play, makes Jack a adult boy. However, <laughs> the fonts that he chooses to use on the typewriter um, is uh, uh, makes the all, the word all, also appear to look like A11. And then you can realize that he's saying, A11 work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. A11 is the um, term, the euphemistic term that they used for Apollo 11. Mm. And um, at that point, Jack Nicholson confronts Shelley Duvall, or I mean Wendy, uh, played by Shelley Duvall, and then uh, the whole crux of everything is revealed when he um, begins taunting her with, uh, um, do you know what an agreement is? Do you know right. what obligations are? I have obligations to my employers. I have signed an agreement. Do you understand what that means? And he's, and he's telling her that he is going to honor this agreement even if it means the death of Danny. And, um, and that is the whole point because he had to do it. Once he agreed to fake the Apollo moon landings, he had to go forward all the way. He couldn't back down. He couldn't get out of it. He didn't want his wife to find out, but she did find out. And then he was really scared that, she, that others would find out that she had found out. And, um, and it was at that point, uh, by the way, in Stanley Kubrick's life, that he bought the uh, place in St. Albans outside London, uh, specifically because it had the big, huge, uh, high walls, um, with dangerous sharp objects on the top of the walls. And um, he would drive around in his uh, golf cart looking for intruders. And he wasn't worried about fans. He was worried right. about people that had learned what he was, was doing. And I don't think, by the way, that this is some great secret. I think that with Wag the Dog by Barry Levinson, where Dustin Hoffman plays Stanley, the producer, who fakes an incident for the CIA and then wants to take credit for it and he dies, Mm -hmm. I think that the film, the upper crust of the film-making community uh, saw the front-screen projection evidence long before I did. I just I can't buy that these sophisticated people in Hollywood would have sat there and never once said, hey, doesn't that look like just like front-screen projection? I yeah. think they knew it right away. I think I I can I can definitely see your point. I think so too. I think I think especially even the public since that movie came out, we we become a little more savvy about how how they try to pull the wool over our eyes. Um, yeah, and, and that's one of the things that Kubrick is trying to tell us too. Both in Eyes Wide Shut, The Shining, Two Thousand One, Clockwork Orange, um, even Barry Lyndon, but uh, Paths of Glory, a uh, 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 Doctor Strangelove. He's constantly telling us that they're trying to pull the stuff over us, right? And, right. and trying to make a, a, a fantasy out of reality. So they invent the uh, they invent the uh, plague that is broken out at the at the moon base, or they try to hide the fact that the general's completely screwed up in Paths of Glory. Um, it's just on and on, and it's one of his ongoing themes, which is the complete fallacy of our leaders and the political and historical situation. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You do see that in, in in every movie that he does. This kind of this general distrust of power, 
his yep. issues dealing with the duality of man. I mean, they're, they're, they're themes, even though his movies are very different genre-wise. I mean, he's expo- they're almost like the same movie in terms of exploring the same yeah. kind of thematic thread. Yeah, It's one long movie. Uh, yeah. done from all these different um, it's like a, it's like a diamond with many facets and every you know glimpse with each with each turn and it hits the light and each Kubrick movie is a different facet of a larger diamond and um and and of course he didn't get to finish the diamond unfortunately but I really think that AI and uh, eyes wide shut were going to be a a very very mature um uh, intelligent examination of some very serious issues, and unfortunately, you know, he died before he could finish Eyes Wide Shut, and uh, AI he never had, uh, you know, he had, had no chance with. So, we'll yeah. never know. Um, just, I wanted to bring up two more quick topics with you and get your thoughts on it. I, I mentioned the, the the numerology aspect of the film. I don't know if you have any any thoughts on this, but I, I noticed the other day as I was watching it that. The, the number 42, uh, yeah. t- 12 and 21, but I'm thinking 42, he's wearing, Danny's wearing a jersey yeah. with 42 on it. They're watching Summer 42 on right. TV. Is there significance? Yeah, I haven't figured that out that? yet. I, 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 I think, well, geez, you, you go down really down the rabbit hole with 42. <laughs> like, um, what, what happened to Stanley is, is that he became obsessed with the Nazis. And he started collecting Nazi memorabilia, but mostly he was interested in Nazi physics and Nazi science. And he uh, and after um, Paz, after he left James Harris and, and and began on his own, he surrounded himself with the Harlan family, who are upper crust German family. His wife, of course, was one of them. His Jan Harlan was her brother. Her, her uncle was Lenny Reffenstahl's cameraman who uh, made the uh, infamous Nazi, he also made the infamous Nazi propaganda film about the uh, Warsaw Jews, um, which is uh, you can actually see now on YouTube, which is a, a seriously hair-raising propaganda piece, if there ever was one. And uh, so here we have Stanley, he's Jewish, a New York Jew, surrounded by all these Germans who were supporters of Hitler, um, living on his compound there in England, and he's hanging out with Arthur C. Clarke, who's hanging out with all the German scientists, and I think Stanley got hooked into what the Germans were really doing in World War II, the physics that they were pursuing, and he, being a smart guy, got interested in it, and I think that the Germans had achieved a something, something in regards to these to these new... To these, this new physics in 1942, and I think that's what the 42 is about. I think it has something to do with the fact that the 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 reason that we had to fake the moon landings was not because we couldn't get to the moon. That the reason that we had to fake the moon landings was because we didn't want to show anybody the real equipment that we had, which we still have, and. Um, and so it was decided early on to fake it, and I believe that Kubrick had it, the entire faking in the can, 70 millimeter in the can, by the end of 65. And uh, all shot, all done. <coughs> and by the way, to you people who say, oh, the technicians, how come no one ever said anything? You've obviously never been on a set, 
and you've obviously never been on the set of a of a special effects film. And trust me, I believe me, nobody on a movie set, I am a filmmaker, nobody on a movie set knows what's going on but the director. Okay? It is just outlandishly out of control confusion if you were looking at it from outside. You would not realize that there was any organization being going on if you were watching a movie set. And if you're using front screen projection, nobody can even see what's actually going on except for the cameraman and whoever looks through the lens. Okay? So only the cameraman and only Kubrick could actually see the background sets or any of that. Alright? And so, I mean, it, you know, you're just not thinking of it right. It's not, it looks like a completely vacant, uh, a place. It's got a few rocks. There's a screen behind these guys. And, um, the astronauts all have visors. So you can't see their faces. So you don't even have to worry about that. It could be anybody inside there. Um, you could be using three or four technicians and every night change the technicians and nobody will ever even remember what was going on. Uh, uh, you know, and, and, and in four or five years, when six years, seven years, uh, for Apollo 17, if they shot it in 65 and they didn't release it till 72, then you're talking a long time. Seven yeah. years the time, between the time they shot it and the time it's released. And, you know, you're, you're, you, you may not remember all the things that were going on on the set. And so I don't buy any of this that, that, uh, um, technicians would have talked or anything it's not even we're not even sure if technicians would have even known what was going on they would have thought they were making the lunar landing scenes in 2001 they would have thought that the scenes got thrown out for some reason 90 percent of everything else he shot got thrown out why wouldn't they get thrown out and they wouldn't have paid it another mind remember they never looked to see they most likely never saw the set so all they saw was a guy in a spacesuit walking around with some rocks around him Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. they never saw the backgrounds. And um, so, you know, Kubrick was in total command of it, and um, he uh, he perfected it. And, 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 and he perfected uh, a way of making films that uh, were, were incomparable. And one last thing I want to say about all this, which is that there's this theme that runs through um, three of Kubrick's most important films, um, 2001, The Shining, and Eyes Wide Shut, and the theme is of an unseen group of intelligences which are operating behind the scenes, um, manipulating humans. In 2001, it's the aliens, um, and they're definitely manipulating the human race. There's no doubt about it. Um, and also, there's a secret space program in 2001. It's subtle, but if you watch it, uh, everything they're doing is a secret. Um, and two, uh, in The Shining, there are spirits and demons who are manipulating the humans. And in Eyes Wide Shut, it's um, the, the Freemasons, the, uh, the people at the party, Sidney Pollack, uh, uh, who are manipulating humans. And the reason I say they're Freemasons is because they are. Uh, his name is Ziegler, um, and Ziegler is Yiddish for bricklayer, and a bricklayer is what a mason is, and he's obviously the head. And also, they're playing the liturgy of the mass backwards during the orgy scene in Eyes Wide Shut, and it's well known that the Freemasons like to um, do reverse masses because of their uh, 
And they really don't like the Catholic Church very much. I'll just put it to you that way. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, this that this the continuous theme that he was building towards. It was a theme that I think he was most concerned with in his filmmaking. <laughs> 